2: Hey, welcome to the 70th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlo. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today it's just the two of us again. We're going to talk about some listener questions. We have some really in-depth ones that we want to really dive into, and then we're also going to catch up a little bit. So let's just dive right into it. Uh, Matt, how did your shoot go, and what will you be working on lately? now
1: now now what have i been on lately now yeah so people um who maybe aren't caught up i just wrapped a pretty epic like two month long uh journey um that i talked about relatively frankly um in the last episode no the episode before last um so if you want like kind of the drama of the whole series uh the show must go on part two which i think is episode 68 um kind of gives you the the background but um But I have since wrapped. I've survived. We had a great time. Things were relatively smooth, basically, from that hectic
2: week on. Um, It's 10, 22-minute episodes, right? It's eight, 22-minute episodes. Eight, 22-minute episodes. And now are you guys editing? Yeah, we're in post now. Post
1: is happening in New York. So um, I may go out there. I may not. It kind of depends on um, how things go, basically. And
2: what's the... Like, why would you do... Why would you shoot everything in L.A.? Have the director in L.A.? and edit in New York?
1: Well, I threw a little tantrum about it, um, and then a producer was like, oh, there's a 35% tax incentive in New York. Even just post-production? Just post-production. So that means that 35% of the money that we spend in New York, they get back again. And that's a pretty convincing reason to do it.
2: Right. So let's say post costs $100,000. You can now spend effectively $135,000 on it because you're going to get $35,000 back. But that money must be spent in New York City. Correct. City or state? Uh, state. State. Yeah. And um, I shot in my movie in New York also. We also got the tax credit. And for those of you that are interested, at least when I shot it, you only got it when you showed them the finished copy of the movie. Mm-hmm. And you have to thank New York State <laughs> in your end credits <laughs> to get it also. Good to know. Good to know. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty darn
1: good reason, right? Like our post budget is... Uh, more than $100,000. So that pay- pays for a handful of plane tickets and a little bit of Airbnb time should I need it. Um, And to me, really, it's just about making sure that as much money goes up on screen as possible. You know, so um, after a little bit of kicking and screaming, I was reasoned with, and uh, it makes complete sense to do it that way.
2: But isn't there, like, there's like a 40% tax credit in Michigan and like 45% in Canada. Sure. Like, why in New York? One of the production companies... Uh, is based in New York and also the network is based in New York. I've done it in a lot of different ways, but you're done directing. You shot everything. You had a shot list. You had a script. You had a script supervisor that marks the script to show uh, which camera shot and angle got which lines of dialogue and which pieces of action. Uh, What are you going to give the directors now to edit with? Do you give them a list of music that you like? Do you give them... Notes? Do you say, hey, you know, I have this one shot in this one scene that you should use in this way? Or do you just say, mm-hmm. go ahead and do whatever you think? So the the same way that
1: I um, I did the, uh, I approached shot listing, which was effectively because ev- like we were scouting as we were going. Um, we were locking locations as we went. Everything was really, you know, you had uh, some prep time, but not everything was prepped by the time we were shooting. And so I realized that a shot list is as a... A traditional sort of document, the way we kind of think of them, wasn't going to
2: work. Um,
1: right. you, know, you were going to waste too much time that creating was, the, generating yeah.
2: this document when you needed to actually be preparing for a, the shoot. A document that said, uh, master,
1: two shots, single, single, over right. and over again, right? Um, and because it's mockumentary, the, the stuff that... I am the most excited for and most interested in is really kind of the stuff that happens on the fly, the dirty stuff, the stuff that kind of Eric Kissick talks about when he was talking about editing Veep. You kind of I want them to build our episodes around or our scenes around those kind of like moments moments in between. Yeah. so the way that we did it is I just kind of hosed down the scene a couple of different ways. and then as we ran the scene a couple of times, I found opportunities where I would say, I would call it live. I would be like, reset, take it from this line, you know, cam op A, whip off of this character to this camera, and then turn it into a two-shot. You know, it was all... It was like shot listing on the fly. So Right. Or, hey, when she looks down at her phone, let's tilt down to the phone and zoom in or something. And I was really, really blessed with uh, with our DP. Andy was operating A-cam, and then B-cam was this guy, Daniel Fritz, uh, and they both have such tremendous storytelling chops that half the time I didn't... They, they were doing it already, you know. And I would say things like, you know, this take, let's be more active, basically, which was our code to, like, play it a little more zoomy, you know, bounce between characters a little bit more. We shot a ton of swingles, which is a term that I don't think a ton of directors use, but I use constantly.
2: Yeah, it's a single that swings that back swings and between. forth. That swings between, Yeah or it's a single person that you and your swinger wife mm-hmm. like to mingle with, right like no yeah. sex, yeah, yeah,, um, so is and when you say hose it all down, what do you mean by that? So when I say hose it all down,
1: I mean um that I'm going to assign each camera a character, and we're just going to make sure that they are on screen saying their lines in a funny way from. The standard angles that you one would need to make sure that we can put together a scene if we need to. So if I do a bad job, so you're
2: covering that's pretty much shooting all the coverage. Yeah,
1: you shoot, you shoot all the coverage as efficiently as you can. And like if I do a bad job um, of punching up a scene or making it active or interesting, if we just shoot what's on the page in a regular way, we'll still have a funny scene because it's funny from the
2: beginning, right? And how many cameras do you have? We're shooting two. Yeah, we're shooting two. two. And so let's say you have three characters in a scene and the first half of the scene, two of the characters are talking to each other almost exclusively. And the second half of the scene, the other two, like the one of the characters changes. So like the other two characters are talking to each other almost exclusively. Do you waste an entire take on just the one character that's only talking half a scene? Yeah, because you want the listening. Yeah, and and not always do I do that, but oftentimes that's,
1: and also it kind of depends on what character is talking because you know and what business they have you know there are, there's room for funny opportunities with that as well so right
2: and do you favor putting like a medium and a close up on one character or cro- like shooting two different shooting characters crosses yeah so so what we call it
1: stacked right what that's where you'll shoot two sizes of the same shot basically simultaneously Right.
2: the idea being that you can always edit this person's dialogue without cutting away from them. Right, correct. Um, Which is great, but
1: because we're shooting, we shot Alexa Mini, which shoots like 4K, and I knew I was mastering to 1080, I would shoot looser wides and know that I could punch in if I needed to. Okay. um, Which I do pretty regularly. So I would shoot crosses. Um, Sometimes, actually, what we would end up doing is we would shoot kind of the scene out you know and basically like as you kind of block through it and you realize what 180s you need and what islands you need you kind of g- get through it all and then I would um, realize that the best way to master the scene actually was to shoot it with one camera and ha- have the, that single camera have the freedom to go anywhere they want and, and uh, I should remind listeners we lit most scenes uh, so that you would never see a light all right, 360, 360 degrees. degrees. So, you, so the camera can spin around wherever it wants and you'll be able to see people.
2: And you do um, that by lighting from the ceiling? From the ceiling, yeah. Or yeah. over a wall or through a window? Um, mostly we were,
1: yeah, clipping onto the ceiling and then sometimes blasting through a window. We did stage work kind of earlier in the series, so now like the stuff that's the most fresh is all the location work. So, you know, sometimes you would build a menace arm. You'd make like one corner that wasn't safe.
2: So it right. was really like 270, basically. Um, and a menace arm, for those that aren't grips, uh, is like a long pole that's on a stand, like a really long pole, like 15, 20 feet long that you can put lights on. And so you can put the stand in the corner of the room and you, but using that pole, you can basically put a light anywhere in the room right? extended from it. And it's I don't know why it's called a menace arm. Well, Maybe I think it's menacing. It, I think it's quite scary,
1: yeah. 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 You you put a lot of sand on the other end because you're like clipping lights onto like... Just a pole, it looks, yeah, terrifying. you literally
2: put like four hundred and five hundred pounds yep. on the stand, so that it won't kill anyone, yeah, by falling over because it's basically a long lever, yeah, yeah, so so we would end up basically like
1: putting like a china ball that we then kind of wrap in black so that it's it's skirted off, so like it's not spilling all over the place, so it basically kind of creates just a pool of light underneath it,
2: uh, that was like a pretty common build for us, right. Something I'm sure everyone knows, but I just think is worth mentioning because maybe it'll be helpful for some newer people. Like when you light a room, I mean, this is, there's no hard and fast rules, but usually in film, in real life, you light a room, you put lamps by the walls, you put sconces on the walls. Everything is kind of, the light is coming from the walls, which means that ultimately the middle of the room is a little dark and the side, the walls are a little bright. In film, you want to do the opposite. You want to put all the light in the middle of the room but you want the walls to be super dark so that's why we like the film china balls the top half of them is black right right so none of the light is going to the ceiling or the walls it's all kind of going down onto the actors and we would use a lot of practicals
1: as well so we would fill all of our spaces with as many different kind
2: of points of light to add you know extra dimension as well right um The, the dp that shot my first movie was like Just amazing, like told me this thing. I apologize if I've mentioned it before. But he said he likes to have every frame have like one at least one white point, at least one black point. Hmm. Like something, you know, basically contrast in the frame. That's what makes the frame interesting. And so if you have a lot of little lights in the background, especially if they're dimmed down. Right. Little bright points or candles or whatever string lights or any of that crap, like it always makes everything look nicer.
1: Yeah, yeah. String lights are, I think, are a thing that the DP that I shot with. In particular, he Hayden. boy no, he loves them. Oh. <laughs> he loves them yeah. to the point where I'm like, hey, we get it. You don't need yeah. Christmas. This all looks like a
2: teen pop music video. Yeah, but they look freaking good. It's especially out of focus. Yeah, they do. They do. Um, I mean, we all saw Stranger Things. Some good it, string light. Scenes. It looks good. Yeah,
1: um, but but uh, the the funny thing that we realized uh, just kind of going back to the way that I covered the show, um, I realized that our close-ups ended up being um you, you never got enough geography and you didn't want to cover it like we would do a wide every once in a while but that the way that you really would get the geography was through all of that camera movement and all the swinging right and so i would have i would clear everything out at the end and have the cam- i would tell my operator to be like pretend you're the only camera in the room and that this is happening in real time so you're tr- you're fighting to try and find all of the shots um you know i always encouraged them to get like dirty like let things kind of um you know foreground elements were always really important for me like framing shots so that it would you know uh, so it felt uh voyeuristic sort of you know that you would mm. see like people's backs or like n- none of my shots were perfectly framed it was kind of like you're trying to like unlearn a lot of habits of how to make something look good right yeah i've heard that about your work a lot yeah yeah it all
2: looks real sloppy yeah. thanks sloppy and yeah. we need it to look yeah. sloppy who's um, the sloppy master get matt yeah. not that matt not that matt matt in low yeah yeah matt in low. um so i'm always just amazed by how you have so much time to like do the fun take and do this take and let's do one that's looser and let's do the swingles and now let's do one where you're- the <laughs> trick is start with the fun take yeah it's just always fun i keep saying i'm gonna do that but then it's like orin you're three <laughs> hours behind and i'm like do we have time for one take sure and uh, that's yeah, no fun. I also on this one
1: in particular called things out all the time. My voice was pretty hoarse by the end. Like end, during a sh- during, during a scene during a scene. So I would re- I was rewriting pretty constantly, improvising a lot.
2: And do you tell your actors like in the beginning like, "Hey guys, just so you know, I'm going to be yelling stuff during the take. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It's just cuz I'm I'm going to be like part of the scene in terms of just like helping you guys out." So Don't don't let that throw you off. You know what's funny is that I,
1: we talked about in the non actors episode how like this cast in particular didn't have any habits, right? They didn't or qualms or qualms. They didn't know what was standard or wasn't, and so, you know, I would kind of check in with them and like you know if if there was something that was shaking them or bothering them, of course I would not do that, but um, but they they were really battle tested for the way that I like to direct and the day players, you know, sometimes had a hard time with it and I would have to remind myself like, Oh, they haven't been doing this for two months. Right. Um, and they so went
2: Christian Bale on you
1: <laughs> or just like, you know, it is hard, especially when it's like that there's a huge time crunch and like, they're the new person in the scene and everyone else is like making jokes and like knows the wardrobe assistant and like, right. we well, got drinks the night before, you know, like it was a really tight knit crew. So it was really a very fun environment and to be the new person in that can be pretty intimidating. And so you to be an actor and like, you're kind of getting on a roll and you're just kind of sinking into the scene and then some jerk behind a monitor is like, say it this way now,
0: right. new line.
1: And you're like, what? Like, are you telling me to say that verbatim? Is that a line reading? Is that just a stupid way of directing? Like, what's happening? You know, I had to catch myself and do a good job of, like, prepping people up top. And then I also kind of, you know, I'd mentioned that uh, Chrissy was the acting coach on set. So she would kind of give people a little spiel up top of, like, hey, this is a mockumentary so you can see the cameras in the room. You know, kind of like the laundry list of things that a person would need to know that's specific to our show relative to other shows. Right. But you know, so so it, you reminded me of a story that I really really wanted to share on the show. Um, speaking of like uh, actors, there was a a day on set where we were just kind of doing a scene, and you know, it was going pretty well. And I came up with a stupid joke, a joke that I knew wasn't that could be really funny or it could be a stinker. A joke in the in the show in the show, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, I'm gonna throw in a little ad lib, a little a little alt, right. And so the character has, like, been, um, you know, he's kind of embarrassed himself, himself in front of his friends. And he's trying to kind of, like, uh, um, make amends, basically. They're all kind of stoic and sad the morning after a crazy, crazy night at a hotel. And so there's, like, a waffle maker behind them. And so he's trying he's trying to, like, you know, offer them, like, hey, I can go get you some cereal. Or, like, I'm very good at this. Or, like, you know... Hey guys wasn't that wasn't it crazy last night? you know that that sort of scene and um, I had the thought of a stupid joke in between takes and decided to wait and throw it out to the actor in the middle of the scene so that none of us had as much time to think about it right and the The joke was uh the character would say, "Would you like a waffle with a w with a w right?" Again, a joke that I was offensive. Wasn't... Go on, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a joke that you know, <laughs> I wasn't sure was going to work, and um, and to his credit, he crushed it. So funny. And it really like he like he was in the moment and like made it work for his character. He knew it was a bad joke, which was the kind of right. the game, right? Yeah. But if I had talked to him about it, like up top, we would have had time to think about right. it. And like, like, wait, why am I saying what? that? That's so stupid. But he's just he was in the moment and just just a grand slam. Who knows if it'll make right. it into the show or not? You know, but like in the moment, felt it felt great for everybody because like I wasn't sure about it. He nailed it. It was in character in the scene. Right. I um, believe a grand slam is pancakes, not waffles. Mm, yeah, that's on. true. It was a Rudy, tootie, fresh and fruity joke. That's for sure. Um, ah, that's pancakes too. Shit.
2: Yeah. No, but that, yeah, that's it, awesome. That is good. It was a, a, good, a moon's over
1: my. Mm, fuck, that's not right. Yet. I, it is
2: interesting how, like, some of that comedy it works best when you don't have time to, <laughs> to well, you overthink time to, it. When well, you don't have time to overthink it, which is my biggest problem. I'm always like, eh, is that funny? Nah, forget it. Right, sure. Let's just continue the suicide scene. You, you,
1: you're <laughs> like, take it or leave it. This is the joke. But, but so the thing about it that's great is that um, everyone involved wasn't sure if it was going to work, but we had all kind of gotten into a point where we would trust each other enough to like, you know, try it. And if it didn't work, who cares? On to the next thing. Right. You um, have all the time in the world. Well, you know, you, I have time to say, would you like a waffle? <laughs> right. You know, Um <laughs> He's just saying it. It's fun, right? Yeah, it's no, funny. Um, and so that that was a funny, weird, the gratifying little moment of like, oh, like the dynamic that you kind of are always going for of being willing, willing to fail, knowing you're going to sometimes. Um, and you know, oftentimes I would start a take, especially if we hadn't really rehearsed it super well or blocked it really cleanly. I would say like, let's make some mistakes you know cuz just right. cause it's, the sooner you make those mistakes the sooner you understand what you need to fix you know right and fail your way
2: up yeah exactly so um that's awesome yeah and that's was something great. it was really comes, wonderful yeah that's something that comes from working on something for 2 months yeah like without a doubt yeah and that's why sometimes you know you're like I'm going to write a pilot and I'm going to make this awesome character and I'm going to do make this TV show and you want it to be as good as veep or as good sure. as silicon valley or, or whatever but those people have such a leg up on you. Like, you can't really compare yourself to these people that have figured out this perfect system that works yeah. together with years of work, you know, I or mean, months of work. So Also, like, Veep
1: is, like, literally one of the guys who invented modern improv is on Veep. Dell Close? Well, oh, Matt, Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh, Matt Walsh, yeah. who was a, you know, disciple of Del, right. and founded the UCB Theater. You know what I mean? Like... And they still don't improvise on that, that much, right? <laughs> no, they do, right? No, I, think they, I, think Eric the, say? I think the way they do it is they run a scene and then, well, no, I think they uh, rehearse and improvise, improvise oh, right. a ton, ton. That makes it into the script. Then they run
2: the scene and then maybe rework it a little bit on set. Right. Yeah. So it's such a dream way to work. Yeah. Let's go back to the point I was trying to extract from you originally, which is about post-production. So now you've done all these cool swingles you've done. Would you wipe a waffle? You've done all these cool things. Do you email the editor, call the editor and say like, Hey, we did this one take where he says, do you wipe a waffle? I would love for you to try it in your cut. Or there's these swingles. It would be really cool to use them. Or I, I zoom out like on the second to last take, I zoom out to a two shot. Do you do any of that or do you want the editor to just like watch all the footage and find magic? I want the editor the to magic? watch all the footage. Because
1: I know I know how funny I thought Would you like a waffle was on set. Um and maybe
2: it isn't. Right. You know. So this is my main issue with like post production always is I feel like I'm just like that. It was so funny on set. We did this thing, or this action shot was so cool, or this was so great, or this person was so charming. And then I watch the edit and I don't see that charm or I don't see, do. would you like a waffle? You know, and then you call the editor and you're like, hey, can we try t- that? There was one take where he said, do you like a waffle? And they're like, I don't see that. And then you're like, I know we did it. And then you look it up in the script, supervisor's mm-hmm. notes, and it's like, it's take two. And they're like, oh, yeah, here it is. Well, I didn't use that one because like his. Yeah, sho- the, his the juice is in the wrong spot. You're right. The yeah, juice yeah, the, is in the wrong hand. You guys like, jumped the line there yeah and then you're like can you just try it and see like let's not worry about jumping yeah. the line jump and then they put it in in the crappiest way and then it doesn't look good and you can either keep fighting for this line that you don't know a hundred percent if it'll work right. or not or you can just be like okay let's move on we have to finish editing this episode right well and and that is the
1: benefit of being there in person right, right? because then Sessioning you, with the you can session with the editor you can look at it real quick you can play with them a little bit you can like tell them like oh this is why it's funny help me You can collaborate with that person and then if it doesn't work, it's out and then you're you've moved on already. It's like it's the long distance kind of telephone game of like digging
2: through footage. That's right. You have to have I mean, Ross Novi said something which is like so not revolutionary, but I kind of love that he said this to when he was on our podcast because he's been on all the best comedies on TV and he said there just aren't that many great editors out there. And it's like, if you have an amazing editor and you know you can trust them, then just give them all the footage. But if it's someone you've never worked with, you haven't seen any of their work, to me, it's just so scary because you work so hard to make these cool shots and transitions. And this happens to me all the time with handheld stuff, especially like I do a cool move and then it just doesn't doesn't get into the edit and you have to like really fight for it. And then you have to convince the editor to make it work. And it's like just too much fighting. Well,
1: I think that's part of why the
2: ground rules conversation is important, because I think if
1: you can clue them into the things that you were trying to do in a grand sense, you know, like like we talk about the we have interviews that are talking heads, what you call them, right? So mm-hmm. a character just kind of like tells you what's uh, what just happened and how they feel about it basically over and over again. And I realized that I don't want any of those takes to be cut. And we shot coverage on them in case we needed them, but I want them to play as wonders. And so, um, you know, I'm sure an editor wouldn't do that. Right. They'll edit into it. They'll edit into it, right? Because there's coverage and stuff. Right. But that's why it's important to me that up up at the top, I say, like, if it is at all possible, do it this way. You know, look for the sloppy stuff. Keep the boom in. You know, those moments, look for the improv,
2: you know, Right. Have you told, so a lot of editors, what they'll say is like, in my first edit, I want to show the directors all the footage they shot. Yeah, so I, I will show that. all the angles. And I think it's, imp- it's important, this is something I just thought of and that I'm going to do on my next thing that I'm not editing is say like, hey, I don't want to see all the angles or all the shots. I want every moment to work. So I just want you to work on making each moment work um, and not worry about showing me all the footage. So yeah. That, that's one, one thing. I think that might be an interesting approach. The other thing that I've done many times, but usually on much shorter form content is I do do a paper edit. And mm-hmm. I know it's kind of probably annoying for some editors, but if it's like a scene that I feel like the sequencing of it is really important to me, mm-hmm. I'll write like, okay, first we do the medium shot on Michael. Mm-hmm. Then we, you know, to yeah, reveal to the, 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 over the body is there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a lot of, some editors are annoyed by it. Some editors, like this editor at Sawhorse that I work with a lot takes them and he usually follows them. They only be like, well, this didn't really work here. So I use this other shot." Like he'll right. he'll start off of my edit, but my paper edit, but make it his own, too. So I don't know. I, that That's kind of been working well for me lately. I, I think also, you know, I'm going to contradict you a little bit in terms of
1: um there being there not necessarily being that many great editors out there because you know i think we've both had our fair share of like ones that are really awesome to work with and ones that maybe we don't click with but i think it's always a really valuable plan to give them the tools and give them permission to go for it right because that, that thing you were talking about like them just showing a director all of the different angles that's another way of saying that they don't feel like they have permission to do their best work they're trying to is it serve that it or is yeah, it no, that I think they don't so. care no no it. no i i think that Editing is a kind of a hard, not kind of, it's a hard, thankless job. I don't think that you can be a professional editor and not care, honestly. Like, there, just be a real estate agent or something instead. Like, there's better ways to make money. You're alone in a dark room for eight hours plus every day. You have carpal tunnel syndrome. Like, it's a hard job. So, like, they care. They care. And you just have to, like, maybe they've been beaten down a little bit, but, like, telling them that like they have the opportunity to make something cool and like that you are there to help them and that you are collaborating with them and that their ideas are really important and can inspire new things out of a show. That's totally worthwhile. And sometimes it doesn't work. I've, you know, there are editors that like I don't click with for sure, but that has worked more times than not for sure.
2: Yeah, I guess it just, I mean, I've worked with a lot of really good editors and some great editors, um, You're also a better editor than me, which is maybe... I mean, I'm... Yeah, I guess maybe because I edit a lot, I have very strong opinions on when I feel like someone has, like, really worked to the footage Mm -hmm. versus just slapped the master shot then the first close-up when the character first character comes in, back and forth and back and forth and just, like, put some... Didn't do temp sound design or didn't do anything Yeah. to... You know, we talk about this all the time, that sound is, like, 50% of the edit. Like, if you're not touching the sound... In your first edit, you show me, then I don't feel like right. you have edited much. Yeah, no, so, that's true. Anyhow, but cool. Well, sorry, I I didn't mean to uh, relieve my stress about post production <laughs> on your show. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I'm in a zen place fun. on it now. So yeah, no, it sounds that. there's no more zen of a place than like just rapping. Oh man, yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, I just uh, went camping. You know, life is yeah. good. Yeah. Do you want to ask me what I've been working you, on
1: do lately? Do you want to talk about what you want to working on uh,
2: Yeah, Yeah. So, so Oren, yeah. what have you been working on lately? Well, Matt, I'm glad you asked. So, I talked a few episodes ago about a pitch that uh, I did with a, a couple other guys, a show creator and a writer, and me, the director attached. And I think I talked about how we structured it, and we talked about the creator and how he was inspired as a child to come up with this idea. Anyway, we pitched this show... Uh, is that I mean, is there any reason why I should not say who we pitched it to or any of that stuff? I mean, it might not happen. I, it might happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, as a funny little tangent,
1: Eric Kissack and I actually talked about this one time. Like, there's you don't want to talk about it too much in case like it doesn't go and you're embarrassed, right? Like, there's right. Part, that that part of it, but also like being able to resell it. Like, there is a little bit of stink on projects that like. Say it doesn't go at this place, right. and you want to take it somewhere else afterwards, like if if it's like, oh yeah, well we've heard about this project a million years ago, and like no one's bought it yet, you know there's a right. little bit of that to it, but I think that honestly, most of it is
2: ego. I don't know well because I think that there may be legality stuff to it, you yeah, know? that's what I'm worried about i what I like about our podcast is that we do talk about this this stuff rather frankly. You know, I feel like I wouldn't maybe say the budget exactly because that seems like maybe unseemly uh, yeah, something that people would negotiate about. Right. But um, anyway, we pitched to this company. I don't even remember if I mentioned last time or not, but it's like a big network that has like a digital seed program where they incubate some shows and we pitched this show and they really liked it. They were a little worried that it for the money that they had to give us, it wouldn't live up to their other shows, their TV shows pretty much. And they ended up kind of passing on it. This was in March. And it wasn't like a hard pass. It was just like, we love the show, but we just can't figure out how to make it for this money. Right. Then somehow the production company that brought us to this network said, Hey, we found a company in Canada that will give us the money to make this. We can still make it with this network. Uh, They'll give us a little bit of money and distribute it in the United States. And then this Canadian company will distribute it in the rest of the world. Right. Right. So it's called they call it deficit financing. And when I made my life that Lifetime movie, we did the same thing, which is basically Lifetime told us we want approval on the cast. We want approval on the script uh, and we're going to give notes on it and we're not going to give you money. To make it, we but we are gonna say give you a contract saying once the movie's done, as long as like you get us to approve all these things, we will buy it for American distribution. It will right. be on the Lifetime network. Um, so we still need the money. The right. movie was like around half a million dollars. We still need this five hundred thousand dollars to make the movie. Right. So we go internationally. We say, hey, this is a movie, It's gonna. it has distribution in the US, it's going to be seen by millions of people, it's got this star, and this is the story, and we basically find an international company to give us the money before we make the movie to make right. the movie, and they're buying the international rights, right. knowing that this movie is already going to be a big American TV movie, I guess. Not and that's big, a model
1: like, where you're guaranteeing that you're going to break even, Right. And right. that's some, basically. Right. It's a way to, to make sure that you're going to actually make money, which, you know, I think as a model has disappeared a lot. So it's interesting to hear that it's back in this sort of digital world.
2: Yeah. And not only that, they said that this, they're doing a, this with a bunch of shows. So they basically found a Canadian company that said, we would love international distribution rights for this show you're making, especially since we... We we like that this American network likes the show. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, and let's say NBC likes this show and we can have international rights for it by paying for it. Right. Up front. Then let's do it. Then um, you're bonafide. Right. Yeah. So so that's the situation. So so originally the show, you know, we never had like a very specific idea of the format. But the idea was always there would be like eight, 10 minute episodes mm-hmm. or something like that, eight, eight minute episodes. Pretty small. And now, with this deficit financing in place, it's a lot more money, but now they want 20 11-minute episodes that can also be repackaged as 10 22-minute episodes for international distribution. Which is important, because that's how long a television show is, so that's a standard unit of distribution. Right. Which now is no longer a good budget, because now we are making... We have... Uh, Compared to Miss 2059, which I did last year, we have probably around half a million dollars more, a couple hundred thousand dollars more, but we have to make way more content. We have to make 10, 22 minute episodes. And in Miss 2059, we did this cheat, which everyone does, which is they wanted 10 minute episodes, 12, 10 minute episodes. And of course, of each of our 10 minute episodes, there's like two and a half minutes of credits because (laughs) you just can't shoot that much footage, good footage in the amount of time and with the amount of money we had. We um, actually, for this show,
1: I I was worried, I knew in, in, each, uh, in each instance that we would have a good show in there, but maybe it's 17 minutes, maybe it's 20 minutes, maybe it's 25 minutes, right? Um, and I knew that we had just a total runtime deliverable, and so we shot uh, behind-the-scenes interviews. Um, just so that maybe we use them, maybe we don't. But like then, of the crew that made the show, of the creators, and like me, we had the
2: DP talk. You know, we had like just interviewed the people. Kinda who... Kind of like how you watch an episode of This Is Us, and they're like, or girls, and they're like, stay after the episode. The yeah, exactly. So it was just like it's Judd Apatow
1: and Lena Dunham and the and Jenny Connor in the same outfit, and they just talk about the episode for a couple minutes, and then they play some clips, and you call it a day. So you did that. We did that. Yeah. So so that. So that we would over deliver on runtime, which makes the network happy. And I never I didn't want to ever hear the note like, oh, we all agree that this is a better creative solution, but we're under runtime and we have to deliver. Right. Basically.
2: Yeah. So Well, and, that's smart. And
1: yeah. it was therapeutic. We did it at the end of the shoot, like literally as the crew is wrapping the scene behind us. Oh, nice. Um, and it was really fun. Like every day. No, 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 no. Th- just, oh, oh. just on our wrap day, I ended okay. up wrapping a uh, couple hours early. So like, we just did it then, and it was like, and the whole crew was there, and like, it was it was really fun, and like, like I said, strangely therapeutic, and really fresh for everyone. Like everyone remembered all of the episodes really clearly. Right.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, our issue is that this eleven minute episode has to be repackaged as a twenty two minute episode, means you couldn't stick something like a behind the scenes mm-hmm. interview at the end of episode one right because it needs to flow seamlessly into episode two two. so you can do it at the end of episode two Uh, yeah that also really worries me for act breaks because
1: like you write with cliffhangers in mind in between like you know where your commercial breaks are and like that that's really confusing to me when it comes to combining 11 minute and 20 into 22s
2: Right. There's a way to do it for sure. But, you know, so it'll be a fun challenge if the show goes. Basically, what they asked us to do is they asked us to uh, think about the tone a little bit to make sure it differentiates the show to differentiate the show more from they They have kind of the action dramas on their network and they want ours to be skew more comedic, which mm-hmm. is totally right, yeah. fine. Great. You know, um, and they want us to come back and repitch to them how this is a 20 episode show instead of like an eight episode show. So last night I got together with the writer and the creator and we sat around for like five hours, oh, spent that about sounds great. two hours playing his VR, Samsung v Vive VR yeah. thing, which is like pretty insanely awesome. But, um, but then we spent a bunch of hours just trying to figure out the season. Have you had to do that? Um, I have not broken a season with other people. I I do it solo. Well, so what do you, it's hard,
1: you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's super hard. I think uh, 20 episodes is tricky too because, you know, I think that if you, typically I think people break those seasons in half so that you've got like a good midpoint. midpoint, Um, And then you kind of use kind of the broader TV structure for each episode. You know what I mean? Like you look at your series arc and look at where the story beats need to happen for each of that, those. And then kind of that becomes your broader guide point for each episode. And then each episode has to have obviously its own arc in it as well.
2: Yeah. So what we did is we have our main three main characters, which now I think we need more characters because mm-hmm. the show is yeah, a lot sure. bigger. So we have kind of our three main characters there, the villain people the other it, it, it's kind of about two different worlds like a more fantasy magic world and a real grounded mm-hmm. world sure fill out those worlds a little bit more where they all start really like nail down their personalities goals motivations mm-hmm. and then where they get to at the end of the season and then also where they're at in the middle and i'm You know, always is something they always talk about on the Nerdist podcast. I'm always like trying to push out as much story as possible in the beginning and not saving things for the end because then nothing happens. Like if like, oh, someone gets kidnapped in the first episode and they find him on the 20th episode. yeah, like It's a long time for a good character to be like stuck in a
1: warehouse or a closet or something. It's just
2: boring. Like let's have him find him in the fourth episode. But then it turns out that you know, he, they're brainwashed he's the or their double agent. or yeah, yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. But how do we, how do we find something that we care about in the world to make this meaningful? You know, like, I mean, you know, I'm just coming off of like watching handmaid's tale and even glow, which is sillier, but it's still about, Boy, I love glow. It's about, you know, w- woman's liberation and it's yeah. about a real thing. Um, so how do we in a fantasy, like in a kind of, action martial arts comedy how do we find something to to grab onto that's that's real and meaningful and i think we we did that with the relationships i think of our characters but it's something that i don't know it it seems a little bit more important to me than to the writer and the creator or just like well it's just like tell them where the characters get to and we'll figure out the thematic stuff a little bit more later but i want it to be you know about something yeah
1: uh, yeah, no, I think I think that's really important, and um, maybe speaks to your experience a little bit. You know, it feels like maybe it's time to go like dig back into like Neil Campbell, like classic hero's journey. Shit. Joseph Campbell. I said Neil Campbell, who is a writer uh, on Cam Comedy, comedy Bang Bang. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he's really funny, and I think
2: he's well I have some good. And words, he, like, read <laughs> he read Joseph Campbell.
1: He read Joseph Campbell.
2: So I'll call Neil. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, the, so the hero's journey. That's, I think that's the second time I've made that mistake in this, like this week. No. Too. Anyway. So I think the hero's journey is not the issue to me. It's the mm. it's subverting the hero's journey or bringing building in the surprises, like setting the characters up in a way that you just don't know what's going to happen next because right. it's the hero's journey, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because we have right. kind of like a, the midpoint, yeah, all the it, characters literally. hate each other or whatever, right. right? They've all felt like like our main character right now, he's kind of set up as like this street kid. Have you seen The Kingsman? It's kind mm-hmm. of like that kid, like this bad guy, like bad kid with a friend, you know, he's been in and out of Juvenile Hall and he steals things and he breaks into this house and he meets this girl that turns out to be important in his life in some way. Um, and her goal is she's like a super tight-laced, technical, smart, ambitious person that is looking for the specific power that this guy can help her get. Um, And by the midpoint, she gets the power and he, uh, and this kid who's always felt discarded by society has, has feels like he's important, belongs to a family of some sort. Um, And then, you know, there's some, some secrets revealed and they all break apart. Right. Reversal. Yeah. And, And so we have that middle point. And then by the end, we know that they kind of come back together, but, hopefully in an unexpected way. Mm-hmm. And some we have some a big ending set piece uh, that we've kind of, it's a Lord of the Rings-ish that we've like teased this entire time and, and something big happens. But, but the in-between parts, we really, you know, you just need a lot of ups and downs that are, are hard to suss out and to know yeah. where to lean into the real world more. Lean into, I was really pitching hard that we have flashbacks of, you know, the the origin story. Like every it would be cool if every fourth episode was like thirty years previously. This is what set up this world and this is mm-hmm. where we are. And like they did that on the leftovers, they did it in Handmaid's Tale, they did it and you know, a lot of great shows now have yeah. these like flashback episodes, or not right flashback, but more like this like sure. rewound episodes that I really like. Um but I, I don't know, it's it's writing is hard because you can just do anything you want. There's sure. no limitations yeah so well
1: number of episodes at least right
2: yeah so it's something that that i'm excited on wednesday we're going to go in and you know even a little bit from our conversation with kate i'm trying to not overthink and overcalculate calculate everything and just kind of be like hey these are our ideas we're super excited you know this is we really know the journey of these characters where they get to and you know if, if we can make this we're going to develop it into being this awesome thing um so we'll see how that goes. But my other question for you is now that I know that the budget is definitely not mm-hmm. big enough for this job, but I really want this job. So I don't want to be like, hey, this budget is going to make a crappy show.
0: Mm-hmm. What
2: do you, have you been in this situation before and what do you do? Sure. Yeah. I think um,
1: I think you just kind of have to be realistic with yourself about what the show's ambitions are. And I think because you're in this writing perspective, like maybe you can kind of hedge things, make some things easier on yourself. Like you have the experience to know that like, hey, you know, shooting in a hospital isn't that expensive if you shoot it at a soundstage and right. you know the th- three good ones. You know, that that sort of insight I think is going to help you with um, all of that. And I think that, you know... um, People want to listen and people will understand. And I think the more experienced people gain, the sooner the sooner they realize, like, oh, like this is a, an important thing. Let's make it easy on ourselves. Or let's
2: figure out where you want to really spend your money. Right. Um, There's always this uh, dichotomy or, like, balance where when you're pitching a show, you want to sell it with the big set pieces. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to say that you can accomplish something for the money that you can't right. really accomplish. Right. Yeah. And I think um, that's also like for
1: the executives to worry about a tiny bit, you know, and I I would say also like making sure like you have a home base for um, shooting, you know, like they all hang out at the same house together or the same coffee shop and you can shoot out that coffee shop for two and a half weeks. Right. And then, you know, it's explosions everywhere else, but at least you own a
2: space for a while, Yeah. you know. Or build a space that we can blow up like Mr. and Mrs. Smith style. Sure, there you go. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good idea. Because the financier is Canadian, we actually have to shoot in Canada. Hey. And we have to get the rebate in Canada. Have you shot in Vancouver before? No, I don't think I've even been to Vancouver. Vancouver is incredible. Oh, cool. It's
1: like a really awesome city. I had I went uh last year and had no idea that I would fall in love with it. Oh, and then cool. like everyone's like, Yeah. It's like the best it's like so clean, yeah. it's so beautiful, it's like like super like metropolitan, super diverse um there's like a ton of natural beauty, it's like an unbelievable city like i i can't, everybody who goes there is like,
2: well, I could live here. it's right. great. They're like, this looks like every movie I've ever seen <laughs> yeah, well look him that like yeah. yeah, um, cool, well yeah, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, I told, I was telling my dad is visiting from Israel. He's not in the film business. And I was telling him because I just, I was at dinner with him when I got the phone okay. call that of all these parameters, I was like, yeah, it's a show. It's awesome. It's going to shoot in Canada probably. And looks like there's a good chance of going, but there's not enough money to do it. And he's like, oh, well, Oren, you have to tell them. I'm like, well, you know, they, they kind of know. And he's like, yeah, but, but you're saying that they want you to just do it. How are you going to do it? I was like, he's like, why don't you tell them it's not enough money. And I was like, because like, if I tell them it's not to enough Hollywood money, Pops. then the show won't go. Yeah. <laughs> and I want the show to go. You know? Anyway, Also, so much stuff is going to change.
1: It's not like you're saying, yes, I can build this house for, you know, $20,000.
2: Yeah. When I came on to Miss 2059, I mean, here I'm a lot luckier because I'm in at the ground floor, ground level and at the start. But uh, on Miss 2059, I had the writers write out two characters. We wrote out like one location and we changed we took 12 episodes that they had written we cut them down to 10 and we split two episodes to the two long episodes into two episodes Yeah, yeah. because you know we, we just had to start scaling back as much as possible yeah. and Corey our friend he's doing a show with Adaptive now he said they had 42 locations in the original script and they cut it down to 21 locations yeah well done so yeah but then you know less locations is a less cool show that's true that's true well anyway let's get to some listener questions uh nathan
1: wrote to us kind of a while ago uh nathan and i actually met each other at a uh, the phoenix film festival uh not this last summer but the summer before great guy listens to his show hey nathan um, this is proof that, uh, meeting people at, uh, film festivals is the best and that you can, um, build some really great relationships. Uh, anyway, so he had a question. He'd love to hear more specifics about how we were able to parlay our web series into branded and commercial work. And, and what would we recommend to others who may have a body of work, but that don't have the foothold in the advertisement world?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah. Sounds like Nathan Nathan wants to get paid. Um, So he either wants to get paid or the other thing that's super common is he has great ideas for commercials, but he doesn't know how to tell Mm. people those ideas. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, uh, there's a couple things. Right. I think um, figuring out the way in which you will be enticing to uh, advertisers, I think is valuable. Like know what you're selling. Right. So in my case, I had a corporate background. Um, so I was really easy to work with. I was professional, um, and then had some awards under my belt. So that kind of like was the little package that made it feasible for me to break into that world. Um, and also like comedy was like a thing that was kind of blowing up in the branded content space at the time.
2: Um, so, so, uh, and a lot of dumb luck. Yeah. Um, But wasn't your first branded, was your first branded job something you got through college humor? It was, but that
1: was also my first college humor job. I started doing branded for college humor before I did sketches, okay which is which is often the other way around. oftentimes you like do sketches for a company for a while or like they're funny videos, and then someone from the branded department is like, Hey, how's that guy to work with right? And you know maybe she should come over and and do these branded spots for us uh i I looked into it the other way around, but oftentimes. When you're in a space like a Funny or Die or College Humor or, um, you know, any of these spaces that kind of have the scripted, funny, purist sort of world and then also have the um, lame corporate money grubbing world, the status is in the creative stuff. Like the cool kids get to just be funny or be cool or like make a cool music video and the sellout nerds are the ones making the branded stuff. Have you experienced that? Do you feel that way?
2: Uh yeah. I mean, there's like a lot of companies, like Funnier Die, for instance, there's like Funnier or Die Originals and there's Funnier Die Branded Side. And the branded side makes money, but the funny but the original side gets all the celebrities. Right. You know? Right, yeah. Um, to work for free because it's a cool funnier die project. And they're only worried about being funny. Right. Like no
1: one is going to be like, mm, you know, uh, craft singles doesn't really represent. Right. We don't stand behind that sort of all joke. your clothing has to be yellow because yeah. cheddar, you know. Yeah. It's just kind of a corporate policy. Um, so. So I'm making jokes about all that stuff, but I know that stuff is coming. And also, I understand why those people are saying those things, you know, like maybe it's backed up by a ton of research or maybe that their boss has really just kind of laid into them. Anyway, I get it basically. So like that was what I was selling. Um Which was how I was able to kind of break into that world,
2: yeah, um, how did you do it, Oren? I don't know, I mean, I you know I honestly think the answer is as unsatisfying as any breaking into film answer is, which is it's different for each person. I can't really think of the first branded thing I did, but I worked. I've told this story before but I just dated this girl that got that sold this web show and their director backed out and I had made all these YouTube videos and I was like let me direct this show. It was a low budget show and then off that show I got two more shows. Off those right. shows I got a job, full time job at Disney. At Disney I did a bunch of shows and then it was right at the time when they started trying to get brands to sponsor. Right. It actually I'd worked there for like three years before a brand even would consider sponsoring a web show. I mean this is like in 2007 or right. six or whatever, a long time ago. Um, but uh, then when I left Disney, like I, I, people knew I directed all these sketches and mm-hmm. things and comedy stuff. And so when these smaller companies were like, let's make a viral video because we don't have money to right. make something big, they'd be like, who yeah. are the guys that do We spend millions viral? of do- dollars
1: yeah. on commercials.
2: What if we spent $100,000 on a stupid video? Yeah. I actually tried to start a company in like 2005 that did viral videos for corporations. And I went and my friend went to UCLA Business School. And so he got the list of all the alumni from that school, from Anderson. And he looked up every single person that worked in the marketing department of any company. And we emailed all of them saying, hey, we have this awesome opportunity. We're making this new business that does branded content. Can you please tell us uh, who we should talk to in your marketing department about this, they would forward us to someone. We'd be like, hey, somebody told us we need to talk to you about this opportunity or yep. <laughs> whatever. And we went in and we pitched to a few companies. We pitched to K-Swiss. Did I tell you this already? I think you talked about it on the podcast, but I don't know about the K-Swiss part. Yeah, well, we you know we're friends with Liam, this guy who had made this viral video about shoes. And we're like, we can bring you Liam, the guy that has 85 million. He's got the third most viewed video on YouTube at the time about shoes. And he'll sing about K-Swiss shoes. And the head of marketing at k Swiss is like, "Uh, and why shouldn't I just put a commercial on during the Lakers game?" <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, "Well, I, I don't know. I yeah. don't know what the that the numbers yeah, are. I don't know media, anything. The media buy cool. is way more expensive." Yeah, so we were like, obviously ahead of our time, as I like to think. But um, but so I think. Ultimately, it's it, there is like a working your way up on like, I mean, my my very, very first commercial was my aunt has a company that distributes AEDs, automatic external defibrillators. And I made a commercial for her for two thousand dollars. She had a hookup at the local airport and we got the whole airport to shoot at with airplanes and stuff. Well, that is pretty cool. Yeah, because cool. she knew all the, like the firemen, all the EMTs, all the right kind of air control people. She was in that world of like rescuing people. <laughs> Well, I, I would say if your
1: aunt doesn't have a company that needs a commercial, um, the point is still the same. You kind of need to start somewhere and having something on your reel is really important. So like I, I would maybe say, take a look at your Tongles and your Mo Films of the world. Because oh, yeah. there's a, a You can make some idea. money, you know, potentially uh, shooting specs and like, you know, I, I think we've talked about, th- about this on the show before, but there is real value in understanding how short 30 seconds is or how short 15 seconds is and like. Those sites are, uh, you know, I have complicated feelings about them, but ultimately they do teach you some, some really good lessons. So as long as you aren't being taken advantage of um, and you have spec work that you want to do and you're doing it for the right reasons um, and you can kind of use that work to get more work, I say maybe that's the way to go
2: yeah and I mean again, like a thirty second t v spot, which by the way, is the holy grail for everyone that wants to work in advertising. It's like, I want to do that Nike spot or I want to do that little Caesar spot or whatever um those are really, really, really hard to get uh and if that's like what your ultimate goal is, there's a much different pathway than if your goal is to do a verizon go ninety ten episode ten minute sure. ten that's ten minute true. episode show, which is also branded content in a different way um so, real quick, the commercial way, the, the way it's traditionally been done is you make three to five awesome spec spots that look like they can be on TV. You make your Nike spot. You make your T-Mobile ad. You make your E-Trade. Whatever you want to do, they just need to be good, and they need to feel in the voice of the brand, but a little edgy or a little mm. unexpected, you know? Yeah. Cool. Or some really funny commercial for condoms. They've a got guy, that X factor, man. Right. Um, so, and then you share them with a bunch of your friends and you put them on Facebook and you move to LA doesn't hurt and meet people at production companies and show them your reel. And then they, you just need to convince someone that like, Hey, I can show this reel to somebody else. And they might want to hire this guy because they have a really unique vision. They do documentary film really well, or they're really good at dance films or skate films or whatever, um, or comedy or kids and commercials. There's a lot of specialization, right? Yeah if you're really good at with working with kids, if you're really good at fashion, well, beauty even stuff, like cars. action,
1: action kids, it gets really next. kids. Yeah. yeah. It's like you're
2: doing all of the, you know, car stuff and all of the like action figure stuff, you know? Right. In the commercial world, nobody wants to hire you to do something if you haven't done it before. Yeah. So you have to show them that you've done exactly that. Um, so even I just did that like no budget, uh, whatever the magazine, howler magazine thing with a bunch of celebrities which whatever I had like each one for five minutes But now someone might see them and be like oh okay He can work with celebrities which like yeah. Everyone can work with celebrities that's but not, I, That's not true You don't it, think so? Yeah, Have you I, met someone that can't I, work with yeah, celebrities? Yeah I've watched people not work with
1: celebrities Like fuck it up yeah. Like just fall apart Yeah I mean luckily they weren't in leadership roles But yeah like If you can't hold your shit together in front of a celebrity or treat them like a normal person or look them in the eye or or also know that they are going to have like this funny
2: quirk that you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I definitely get a little nervous around celebrities, but I usually just just cut to the business with them. You know? Uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's helpful. I think the only time that I've worked with a celebrity that I really cared about was I did some spots with Ken Marino. Oh, right. Who was from the state. Coke I, Pepsi uh degree degree yes sorry. oh boy, and i like he's so funny, that's right. the easily the most star Trek but he's like such a warm, funny nice guy I right right, um and I guess Ke and peel now as well, but most of the time the the I've worked with way, way bigger celebrities, no offense guys,
2: but like uh they I'm, i don't care yeah, well, for Which me is like. Nice. I don't know. Like, I work, you know, I worked with Tim Meadows and Jack Black, and Tim Meadows is so much more accessible. And he's like a guy that can probably walk on the street and not be yeah. assaulted by people. And I don't know. That made me, he's very warm and friendly and yeah. welcoming to talk to anyone. Jack Black, I don't know if he is or not because the people around me made such a big deal about having him. He right. seemed really nice, but it was like, don't ask him to do this. Don't ask him to do that. It's yeah, like, yeah. waste. It's like you feel like, you need permission to say, like, can you do another take, you know? Yeah. Um. So it's weird. But anyway, uh, back to yeah. the question, which was how do you do it? So commercials, there's that, that way. Branded right. content, I would just... I honestly think what Matt did is kind of the best way. And it's kind of the same thing that I did, which is, like, try to meet people at production companies, do their, you know, cheaper work or whatever, show them your stuff, get them to think of you as a director, and you know, get them to let you <laughs> direct something. Uh, I mean my, this company Sawhorse, that I worked with a lot, like we would do all tech commercials for like two years, you know? Yeah. Like there's some company that makes like hard drive arrays in Silicon Valley and they want to they make need a, a video, a funny yeah. video about hard drive arrays that like six people will get, but at least you're building your reel on somebody else's dime. Yeah. So anyway, I hope that Maybe there's some local businesses an
1: that want commercials. Yeah. I know? mean,
2: there's the, what what's their names? Uh, Rhett and Link. Rhett and Link, yeah. Yeah. They're like an awesome story, but I don't know if you can do that again. I mean, you probably could. I mean, maybe. Rhett and Link are these two YouTubers that made these awesome commercials for local businesses that are so silly, but done really well, and they're all musical, uh, that they started getting a ton of work. I mean, they did other stuff too, but... Yeah, I think there's a TV show about them making those funny commercials. Cool. Well,
1: thanks, Nathan. Uh, uh, Keep uh, spreading the good word. Uh, and everybody, uh, check out his uh, web series "Voyage Trekkers on YouTube. Google "Voyage Trekkers. It's like a, you know, like a funny um, Star Trek style parody show. Uh, that's great. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks. Next up, we've got Mackenzie Lansing. So Mackenzie writes in. Um, Mackenzie's a girl's name, yeah. I'm I assume... always think of it as a
2: girl's name. Yeah. Never know.
1: I'm, no. I'm gonna go on a limb. Apologies if not, but Mackenzie, I'm doing my best here. (laughs) So uh, Mackenzie, you're uh, an aspiring director making money working on movie sets as a personal assistant, but doing short form comedy bits and acting and producing and directing on the side, doing that, doing the hustle. Um, But you realized uh, for a while I approached my job just as a way to pay bills, but I realized getting to work so closely around movie stars and other movie sets is rare. I was wondering if you had any tips on how to best utilize such an opportunity. To learn, to create context, or to network. Uh, where you're kind of on the sidelines as a hopeful as opposed to an already established and successful person. Yeah, so, Mackenzie, that's a good one. I remember being an intern at the Director's Bureau, which was a very, very cool place. And there were always very cool people walking around. It was Roman Coppola and Mike Mills' production company. And so, like, Phoenix would hang out, you know, Sophia Coppola had an office there. It was very cool. And um, I did a terrible. thing. Phoenix terrible. is Joaquin Phoenix. No, Phoenix the band. Oh, okay. Phoenix the band. Okay. Um. Yeah. No. no. Joaquin <laughs> and I are on last name basis. That's true. Um, that's very stupid. Phoenix uh, and Enlo. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what did uh, you do there? So I was an intern there, and um, I always compared myself to like being Kim- Kimmy Gibbler. I was just like, hey guys, what are you doing?
0: Right. And
1: uh, you know, I was like a teenager and stuff, and like didn't know who Morrissey was. You know, I was constantly embarrassing myself in in front of these ultra cool people. And I think about it all the time. And, you know, I don't know. They could tell that I was hardworking and like earnest. Um, And that I think you kind of can't complain about, Mm
2: -hmm. you know, like, but did they think of me as an equal? Certainly not. No, but I think it's not about getting you thought of as an equal as much as like, how do you, how does this affect your directing career uh, mm-hmm. beyond you just learning good sure. stuff? But so the happy ending is that I made it clear that I
1: wanted to direct music videos. And one day the video commissioner was like, Hey Matt, you know, I'd given her my reel, which wasn't very good, but it had a light bright um, music video on it, like a proof of concept. Um, and uh, she was like, Hey, no one else wants to do this video. The budget is $5,000. Um, do you want to direct it with um, this other director who also was kind of around and like his building is building Israel and stuff. And that was my first job.
2: I think kind of the key in what Matt is saying is like finding those opportunities to talk about what you're doing without sounding self-promoting is hard. It, mm-hmm. It's like it's hard. Yeah. It, it takes a while. And I mean, it sounds like you've been on sets and have interacted with these people and you know, you, I don't know. It's weird. I've seen people like really trying hard to be friends with a producer or a director mm-hmm. or a star or something. And it's awkward. Yeah. But um, yeah, you can't force it. You can't force it. And it's OK if it doesn't happen
1: on, you know, your first job or your second job or ever.
2: Right. Know? I mean, I think the best thing is to obviously learn as much as you can. Right. And then to be making your own stuff, writing your own things, shooting your own things. And then, you know, I did that Burning Man thing. And if I was on set with some celebrity and they say, oh, yeah, I just went to Burning Man, I might say like, oh, cool. I actually just made a video about Burning Man that, you know, you can check out. (laughs) You should check out. And then I would leave it at that. And 90 percent chance Mm -hmm. they wouldn't check it out. But 10 percent chance might be like, oh, I think someone posted that on my Facebook page or whatever. And now at least they think of me as a director yeah. in some regard. That's like step one, of like the long con. I'll I'll say
1: also really kind of going back to my previous story and also the show that I was just on. It, it would have been totally inappropriate for me to walk in on day one and be like, here's my reel, take a look, right? But I, I had made a connection with that producer. Like she was pretty young and understood that like she was looking to mentor people basically. And we'd both gone to the same school, so, like, we could talk about professors and stuff. And, you know, she was ready to kind of help me out. I knew that it wasn't inappropriate to do this, but, like, I hung out there for, like, a year before that happened. right? Right, Like, literally a year, like, every Tuesday and Thursday.
2: There's nothing more annoying than the people that, like, on day one are like, hey, yeah, I'm the assistant today, but what I really do is direct. And here's my thing. And sorry, I'm going to have to leave early today because I have a shoot tomorrow. Yeah, the the
1: trick is like no, you do have to have the audacity to know when to strike, right? Yeah, like, you but can't, not to come off as entitled. You can't, yeah, come off can't come off as entitled or like that you're not there to do the job that you were asked to do. You right? Know? You know, there are plenty of PAs who, you know, I know a little bit, and like I know want to direct, um, and like we'll talk to them about that and, and all of that. But like, it's not until you get a real relationship with any of them and you see them like busting their ass and working for you that you want to help them. You know right. what I mean? Um and so like showing that to people some some people aren't going to recognize it and some people are too busy or maybe too self-absorbed or just, you know, on more more likely just kind of like got to go see their kids baseball game or whatever and just don't don't have the time. But like there are people out there who will help you and like Hollywood is built off of like mentorships and apprenticeships and it's not not quite as cutthroat as people talk about or fear you know right
2: you'll find the good ones and just as a dumb tip that i (laughs) have something i've done before because i didn't want to say like hey can i show you my video or hey will you read my script uh sometimes if you approach it as asking for advice from someone Mm -hmm. that you respect their opinion it might come off better so you've been working with this producer you really like maybe saying to him or her like hey i'm you know i made this short film do you know any like if you were me who would you show it to like who would you send it to yeah
1: having specific questions is helpful and also not over extending right like you get like if it's an email or a coffee you do it once maybe you can do it again later if if you feel it out and it seems like they're having a great time but for the most part it's kind of a one and done sort of situation
2: and i'm sure everyone knows this but nobody busy and successful wants to read your script (laughs) yeah yeah that's uh that that's a challenge too. And I think that's pretty rough again. You have to sell yourself as someone that is interesting to work with before you can ask someone to read like your 150 page drama Mm. about your childhood. I would say one final thing, Mackenzie, in terms of
1: things that you can be learning being around movie stars or producers or production people, everyone has kind of a different way of um, interacting and how business is held. You know, there's, there's a set of, traditions and codes and uh, you know, acumen basically that um, uh, like I said, but that's what I was lacking when those stories about the director's bureau was just like, you know, I made up for it in sincerity, but you know, um, I didn't have the currency to trade with those people. Right. Um, And so just observing that and understanding where each person is coming from and the way in which that business is done is really invaluable. And that's kind of the other thing that like a little bit of corporate experience or a little bit of like time as an assistant is really helpful. So you just kind of understand the terminology and the codes and who's who and who you, you know, should be connecting with and that sort of stuff. So, so um it may feel like a dead end job, but that's
2: all training wheels for the big leagues for sure. Do you think there's any value in just like, being cool <laughs> like 100 percent. like hey i like your yeah. shoes yeah i got these at
1: this cool shoe yeah, shop having good taste or like um being um successful yeah it makes it you seem like people want to help you and yeah that that's the worst part of the this place is like that affluence or that ability to kind of trade in those worlds does is valuable but it's also totally surmountable you can totally with good taste or with thoughtfulness or um, you know, you can work your way around. You don't just have to have money.
2: Um, and let me ask you one more question on Mackenzie's behalf. If someone asks her like what else she's doing or what else she's up to, should she say, Oh, I'm working on some comedy stuff on the side cause I want to be a director. I'm an aspiring director. Or should she say, Oh, well I'm a director as well. And yeah, I think you can say that I direct things on the side and like,
1: when they're like, oh, you know, what is it? And you can say like, oh, well, I've got a sketch comedy group. You know, everyone can read between the lines. So like, oh, I, I you know, I write and direct. like, I had this YouTube video. It's maybe not the strongest way to say it, but oh, I had this YouTube video that may- went viral. Maybe you saw it or uh, it's about this or like, oh, I'm part of, um, you know, uh, I'm studying at the Groundlings or I'm at UCB. Like there were kind of pathways to show that even though you're starting out you're serious about it you know and that's kind of the thing that maybe is um hard to explain to people a little bit you know yeah like i there's mean there's a difference between you you just you're trying to say like i'm not just fucking around i'm for real you right
2: know? every once in a while you can sneak in a log line too <laughs> <laughs> sure. like oh i'm working on this comedy show about uh right. you know uber drivers <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh and then oh really? That oh, sounds cool. Uber. interesting. Uber. Okay. So yeah. Well, hopefully we weren't insanely vague with our answers. I keep fighting the good fight, Mackenzie. Um pay those okay. bills and uh
1: you'll get there. So let's do one last one question. Last one. All right, so our buddy Alric over at uh the Making Movies is Hard podcast brought up a topic that they uh had talked a little bit about in their podcast. Um, they're both filmmakers um, that are kind of thinking about, uh, you know, they want to take their careers to the next level and they're trying to think about like making their first features.
2: Making movies as hard as uh, Timothy and Ulrich. T- Timothy is a commercial producer that com- produces giant multi-million dollar commercial campaigns. Ulrich is a filmmaker that also produces and directs and does industrials and shorts and all sorts of things around the Bay Area. a ton of production experience neither one of them has made a feature yet and they both really 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 want to make these features they've been trying to raise like a substantial amount of money to make their features but they think that they might be able to just make them faster if they make them for really cheap cheap yeah yeah so here let me read the question actually so do ultra micro budget features really matter timothy
1: timothy and i have both been realigning our strategy with getting our first features made and have been taking steps to make 20k to 100k features rather than trying to raise. Uh, a quarter of a million or more to get our first feature films done. But then we were asking ourselves, how many ultra low budget features do we even watch? And if it weren't uh, through watching features that our guests make, we would probably couldn't even count more than two or three. So that, that's the interesting part of the, of the conversation for me. It's like, yeah, it's true. Like watching like a great, like indie, indie, indie budget movie. It's pretty hard, right? right. Like if it's, if it's not a Duplass brother movie, it's pretty darn hard to name Can you name five micro budget films you've seen? Sure. Uh Pi, yes. which Yeah. Sixteen thousand dollars. Um micro, micro, micro.
2: We'll go one 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 at a time. So we uh-huh. go back and forth. Yeah. Okay. Uh primer. Primer. Ooh, that's a good one.
1: Um do they need to have broken out? I think that's really the question. Because I, mean, I think because you can name other ones like, you know, Uh, Bread and butter, bread and butter. uh, Echo Lake, June falling down. You know, I I, I can name movies that I've seen at uh,
2: film festivals. No problem. Dave Made a Maze. Is that micro budget? Yeah, I I would call that micro budget. Um, I I guess the other big ones are Blair Witch Project, Desperado, Paranormal Activity. Uh, There's the one about the sharks that was shot on like the Sony PD150. Tangerine Deep. Water or something. Yeah, Tangerine. Yeah. So yes, the on the off chance there it there might be an audience, but I think I mean, you know, we had William who directed Dave Made A Maze, Bill Watterson on the podcast and he's getting a ton of meetings in Hollywood. He's worked with these awesome actors. People love his movies, got a ton of awards. Like to say that it's easier for him to move to the next level now as opposed to a year ago is a big understatement, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's so from a career standpoint, of course, these micro budget films, if they get into good festivals, if you, any movie that gets, if you ever had a movie at Sundance, it's pretty much like you can get a meeting almost anywhere. If it was within the past year or two, right. it changes things.
1: Yeah. I think, um, th- this is the frustrating answer. If your movie kicks ass, then yeah, it does matter. And that's, that's the challenge. That's the problem. Like, a, you know, a $5 million movie that sucks. We've seen plenty of those. I can name way more of those than I've seen great, you know, $20,000 movies. But um, really, you just have to ask yourself is, does does your concept uh, work for that budget level? Right? Because maybe it does. And if, and if that's the case, then yeah, go shoot it. Shoot it now immediately for sure. And if you've got the big expensive idea... You know, um, it's worth, worth thinking through a little bit more. Yeah,
2: my my take on the big expensive idea, and I, and I had emailed about this, and I don't know if he agrees, but I think is like find the best scene of that movie or the first scene or just something that really sells the style and tone and why this movie is awesome and everyone should see it and why you're an, you're the guy that should direct it or girl that should direct it and go shoot that scene, like the proof of concept version, you know? Maybe it's a visual trick you're setting up. Maybe it's a performance or an interesting character, or something that can help you get that movie made, get you the mm-hmm. seven hundred thousand or three million dollars. you the to cast member you really need. Yeah, yeah. So I, that's kind of my new strategy: uh, is not doing the two one or two hundred thousand dollar film, but doing the twenty thousand dollar scene or set piece or mm-hmm. sequence that will sell someone on my movie because it's like, oh, damn, that's like so good. And it's very much coming from you. So you Mm -hmm. I want to give you the money to make this. Right.
1: And then you you prove that you did
2: it. Right. And also you can show it to actors, you know. Uh, It's it's much much easier to get them to see like a short film or a sequence or a scene than to read a script. And there's a lot of great examples. Like Whiplash was a short, right? Um, Sure. A lot of the more recent big directors, especially in the VFX world, came up through shorts. So I'm kind of on the shorts bandwagon. I'd rather take $20,000 and make an awesome short proof of concept that hopefully gets into festivals too and maybe gets me to meet those people um, than to make the $200,000 feature film that is just compromised at every corner and that. Probably no one will see.
1: I think there is a big difference between $20,000 to $200,000, though. You can make a good movie for $200,000. I don't know that you can make a good feature for $20,000 without... But pr- I, fucking prove me wrong, please. Like, I would love it. Well, Clerks is the perfect example where it's like, oh, yeah, we just had a camera and some funny people and one location, right? It's yeah. Po- it's totally possible. You know, I think it, we're kind of... In another sense, we're talking about, like... Um, you know, just needing to step up, right? Just like, just shoot it, just make it, right? And like,
2: yeah, I mean, monsters. Yeah, it's I possible. don't know. Maybe, it, maybe it, there is an audience. It's just gonna be really, really. It, it's just a giant gamble, you know. Yeah the 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 brutal answer is like, the only movies that matter are good movies, and it's hard to make a really good movie on that budget because. You have to do everything on your own, more or less. You right. can't get the best editor and the best sound person and the best, right? you know, costume designer. Right. It's just you, whatever you can gather in you. your garage.
1: And like, you know, Squaresville, I had a ton of help, but like it, I Squaresville, I think of a kind of a, in a certain sense as my indie feature, right? Like it was the same sort of like, you know, it was $12,000 and like a ton of friends and family um, and was feature length, right? And we shot it on a 5D and all of that stuff. And, you know, the not having the money to ask someone to do something for you just meant that you had to do it yourself. And, like, there's something really incredible and romantic about that. But you just have to be able to actually deliver, is the issue. Well, so come up with an idea that's $20,000 and then go shoot that. Yeah. And or an idea that you can make a $20,000 awesome short out of that inspires people to buy the movie from you.
2: And I would also argue that if your goal is to take your career to the next level, that the audience isn't that important. If your goal is to make a movie that is seen by millions of people, then the audience is important. But if your movie is doesn't get into any festival, but some agent at CAA sees it and it makes them think you're perfect for some movie you want then it is great you know or if some indie film producer sees it and wants you to direct their next movie then it did what it needed to do
1: yeah I mean I think unfortunately there tends to be a lot of overlap like agents care about who won South by Southwest right then
2: whether they saw the movie or not right I mean paranormal activity like right didn't get into yeah I would say that movie's not
1: very good I if would say I have not enough. seen it. Really? Oh man, it's like pretty boring. <laughs> Did I tell, have I told you my paranormal activity story? No. So this this is the perfect example of um, how little I know. <laughs> um, so I my friend is in paranormal activity. There are three actors. Okay. Okay. So there's the two leads who yeah. who who live in the house, and then the third person. It, she was the second choice for the lead, that, and then the director liked her so much. She was like, "Well, I can't put you in this, but I'll ask you to be the this." So they they Google a girl who's been um, uh, possessed, and she plays the girl who's been possessed, and she like chews her skin off of her arm on like a QuickTime video that they download off the internet. Cool. So she's the third person. So you know, we'd known her for years. She's great. Uh, she was like, "Oh, hey, I'm in this movie. Will you guys come to the director's house?" Or the producer's house up in the Hollywood Hills and watch a rough cut and um you know, give your notes and stuff. Right. And and so I'm like, okay, cool. And it's like, so we watch this movie and I I, I tear it to shreds. <laughs> right. And they're really they're specific of like what the is the ending good enough and all this stuff, and I'm like, this whole movie's bad <laughs>
2: effectively. Right. right. And uh how the, different was it from the final cut? It's the movie. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> I don't know But the story is that Spielberg saw it and was like oh I want to show this to the people at Universal right it, I think Spielberg had already seen it at this point Paramount like like, like we were at a
1: fancy house in the hills they had already reshot the ending um, and they were kind of just trying to decide between the original and the last one and I just was like
2: don't even bother re- releasing that movie <laughs> yeah well goes to show you Matt Enlo can be wrong doesn't know anything I have not been proven wrong yet this episode <laughs> well awesome well thanks cool. for writing in we have some more questions but we're out of time so we'll try to get to them next in the next few episodes uh, but um, before we end the episode I just wanted to know Matt do you have anything to endorse in an unpaid manner
1: unpaid endorsements
2: so my unpaid endorsement for the week, I came across a, a
1: YouTube channel called Filmmaker IQ, um, which is pretty great overall. I think there's all sorts of um, really great videos in there. Their thumbnails are a little crabby, but um, don't let that fool you. The info on them is really great. But my favorite are the Filmmaker IQ courses. They're like pretty comprehensive um the properties of camera lenses the history and science of lenses the science of camera sensors so it's real it, it's a the what i really loved about it is that it's a very deep dive on um the science and physics behind lenses and as a result um helped me understand you know like bokeh better you know like there's they it's maybe the best example of like breaking down with visual aids, the things that are happening that, and the tools that we use every single day on a, on a fundamental scientific level.
2: And I thought they were really great. Cool. Filmmaker IQ, one word, um, filmmaker space IQ. Well, awesome. My endorsement is going to be the worst endorsement of all time. It's a movie that everyone's already seen, but I just saw it and Matt thought it was eh. Okay. But it's on Netflix right now. So you can watch it and it's called it follows. And yeah, it- no, I thought it was pretty good. I loved it. I don't know why. Maybe I just didn't know what to expect. It's a, a th- horror thriller film, but it's just got this, this super simple idea. I love the way it's shot. I think the performances all feel natural. It's got this timelessness to it that's weird but cool. Um, some people felt like the rules of the world changed throughout the movie and it bothered them, but it didn't bother me. I thought it was great. Check it out. It follows. It's on Netflix right now. If uh, you want to write us your own question, email us at JustShootItPod at gmail.com. We will have show notes and information about everything we talked about, hopefully, at JustShootItPodcast.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at JustShootItPod. And you can follow me at SmiteyPileg. And me at Mr.
1: Matt Edlo. Our music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Might bye
0: Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus.